Let's go to God in prayer and then we'll um, open up His Word. Let's pray. Great God and most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have... um, you have redeemed us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We, we are declared righteous and that we are able to even uh, tonight gather together in the name of Jesus as those who are saved and who are being sanctified according to the riches of your grace. We thank you for your word which you have breathed out. We thank you that it is uh, true and faithful and all things pertaining to life and godliness are spoken to in it. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us and strengthen us and encourage us as we continue to work through the backstories uh, to the, the book of Ruth. Help us as we, um, as we think tonight of the story of Rahab and as we uh, read this story and think about it. I pray, Lord God, that you would lead us to give you thanks and to worship you. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Okay, this evening, the Old Testament book of Joshua and the second chapter, Joshua chapter 2 and the series that we've been doing on Sunday mornings through Ruth is continued to to be further developed, hopefully, through this afternoon series on the, the backstories of Ruth. Ruth would not exist as a, as a book of Scripture were it not for these stories. There would be no book of Ruth if we didn't have Lot and his daughters. There would not be a, a book of Ruth if we didn't have Judah and Tamar. And there wouldn't be a book of Ruth if we did not have Moab and the fields of Moab and all the crazy things that were happening there. Tonight, we're going to see that there would be no Ruth if there was no Rahab. Now, I want you to think for a moment about these these stories that I've just mentioned. Um, As you reflect on them, I think we should be agreed that... uh, Two weeks ago when we were talking about Moab and all of that, we thought, oh, sorcery seems pretty tame compared to some of the bad things that uh, they, they, they got on with in the, uh, uh, you know, Lot and his daughters in the cave and Judah and Tamar and all of that. Um, and then, of course, there's the twist because the sorcery failed. And so the, um, uh, the Moabites flooded the Israelite camp with prostitutes and... Um, Next thing you know, because of their immorality and their idolatry, they did a very good job of cursing themselves where Balaam failed. You know, I, I know a sordid sexual element has um, run throughout these stories. Um, I, I, I really do wish that had not been the case. And I, I'm not um, a Freudian in my philosophical system. I, I don't, I'm not one of those... Those people who believe that um, all of life is sex, um, uh, but that, that is the reality of these stories, certainly. And um, uh, trust me, I was, um, uh, if you were uncomfortable hearing them, I, I, I have been somewhat uncomfortable sharing them. You know, Lot's daughters sexually exploited him for the endurance of their family, and perhaps as they thought, their survival of the human race. Tamar disguised herself as a cult prostitute, knowing something of the then character of her father-in-law, Judah. 
who took the bait. She just heard he was en route and knew him enough to know if she dressed a certain way and stood on the side of the road, he would make his move. He fathered twin sons by her. Uh, you may remember the discreet search of Judah's servant for uh, the cult prostitute, as though that might make it a little better. There was a, some religious connotation, at least. And the response of the people, no cult prostitute has been here. But there were cult prostitutes aplenty in the fields of Moab, as we saw those two weeks ago. And uh, they did lead the Israelites down that path of immorality and idolatry. No prostitutes, pretend cult prostitutes, actual cult prostitutes, and now tonight, just a regular prostitute without even a pretense of a religious element. Let's read from Joshua chapter 2. We're going to let the story uh, unfold before us this evening, but uh, look at the, the setting at Joshua chapter 2 verse 1. Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly to Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. Do note uh, that sometime previous, 40 years to be precise, Joshua was one of two men, no, one of two men who came back out of a group of 12 and said, God has given us the land. Let's take it. The other 10 caveated everything that they saw and said with, but the people are too strong. They're, they're mighty. They're giants. And we're, we're like grasshoppers. And their faithlessness ultimately, tragically, won the day. And the people did not take the land and would not take the land for another 40 years. Those ten died. Joshua, now an old man himself, seems to have learned the lesson. Let's not send twelve spies. Let's not go down that road again and risk it. Two will do. And these two spies, they go to the land. They view the land, especially Jericho. They went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Now, that's what you need to see first from the passage, a prostitute. I remember the first time I comprehended consciously hearing the word prostitute. I'm sure I'd heard it before, but I'd not, it had not really sunk in until uh, my family moved here. So we're talking uh, 2003. And the man who was leading our, our youth group, um, I don't know if it was an attempt to be edgy or not, but he regularly made a prayer request about a, um, a couple of prostitutes who would stand near the church. And um, uh, they had had people engage them with the gospel. And I just remember hearing that prostitute. And for some reason in my mind, I, uh, I thought it was the same as destitute. You know, they sound similar, don't they? You can think in a childish brain, destitute, uh, prostitute. Um, and, and so I, 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 
had created this imaginary story in, uh, that I was sharing with my family one day, and I identified one of the characters as <laughs> prostitute. And I, I just remember the faces falling. Prostitute, what? It doesn't mean they're really poor. <laughs> no, that's not what it means. <clears throat> the oldest profession in the world, they call it. Uh, why? I'm not sure. I think uh, there's a poem that says the oldest profession in the world is, is that of the tailor, because Adam and Eve tailored garments out of fig leaves. Uh, there's a whole poem about that, actually. But uh, at some point, they began to call prostitution the oldest profession in the world. Thanks uh, largely, it seems, to the literary influence of Rudyard Kipling, who's better known not for giving us a phrase about prostitution, but the classic children's story, The Jungle Book. Um, it entered Victorian English, and it endures today even, um, in certain circles at least, as a euphemism for prostitution. Prostitution is the act or practice of engaging in sexual activity for money. And prostitution shows no signs of going anywhere. From victims of human trafficking, to people funding their addictions, to those who voluntarily enter the porn industry or take the more recent do-it-yourself approach of only fans. What is definitionally prostitution is far more prevalent than you might think. Think about that. The exchange of some sexual service, physically or digitally, whatever the case may be, for money is prostitution. Any stigma is fruit of the impact of Christian morality on our nation's social conscience. If prostitution, if, it doesn't always, but if it shocks, if it troubles, if it seems to have in some way been perhaps driven more underground than some of the tawdry tales that we hear of the past where it's, it's much more visible and seems to be more common, even though it's not really more or less now, um, it is by the grace of God. And that often working through His people to bring scriptural principles of justice and righteousness to bear on life over the centuries. But prostitution in some form or other continues and in fact may, thanks to the internet, actually be more prevalent than we, uh, we've ever known in human history. Rahab was a prostitute. And the Bible never lets us forget that. That's kind of hard to, to stomach, is it not? Because we, we sometimes think if someone has something of a redemptive story arc, that their past identity might be forgotten. Not always. Joshua chapter 6, verse 17, Rahab the prostitute. Joshua 6, verse 23, Rahab the prostitute. Go into the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, 31, Rahab the prostitute. James chapter 2, verse 25, Rahab the prostitute. And there are 
a handful of other times where she's mentioned without that addition, the prostitute. But when she is mentioned, it is in such a way as suggests a knowing nod. We might see one of those passages before the end of this evening. These men come to the house of Rahab the prostitute. Now, you might be thinking, oh no, is this another one of those terrible stories like we've heard in the previous messages? What are they doing at the house of a prostitute? If you think uh, even about more recent art, uh, westerns, I don't know if you want to call them art, I'm not sure, but some of us enjoy them, uh, there is often a, a saloon. You want to know what's happening in town? They go to the saloon. And what is the saloon often? Might not always be spelled out, but the adults watching know what's up. It's often a brothel, or at least upstairs is, because you have the lady in her flouncy dress sort of come down the stairs and sit in the guy's lap and give him a whiskey and you know all sorts of crazy things break out after that. Um, that's fairly standard Western film storytelling. And actually, throughout history, if someone wanted to go into town and wanted to escape unnoticed, perhaps, go to a place where people wouldn't make eye contact, a place where they could hide, a place where they could have their ear to the ground and know what's up, what's happening, they would go to houses of ill repute. They often were more than just brothels. They were places where you could sleep. They were places where you could eat and drink. They were places where you could find things out. And they were places where more than just sex could be bought. Information. The perfect place for spies. Verse 2. It was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent... Notice they didn't say they're at Rahab's. This is the place. This is where they, they go. The king of Jericho sends to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house. Someone did inform him it would seem a bit. He, he knows this is where they would go. They've come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I, I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. They went that way, I think. But she brought them up to the roof and hid them with the socks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. The coast is clear. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof. Uh-oh. 
Is this where the story takes that sordid turn that some of the other stories have taken? No. Based on the trajectory of previous weeks, you might be forgiven for thinking so, but it's, it's not what you might think. Uh, the, the story does not, although Rahab will forever be remembered as Rahab the prostitute, it does not stop with Rahab as prostitute. The story continues, and we, we're introduced through the words of Rahab the prostitute to a powerful God. She goes up to the roof and she says to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. She she is not an Israelite. She is not a Hebrew. She, She is not in any way, shape, form, or fashion connected to the Hebrew slaves who are coming out of Egypt. I know that the Lord has given you the land. And the fear of you has fallen upon us. All the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you. When you came out of Egypt, that's 40 years previous. That's before Rahab was born. In all probability, Rahab at this point is still very young. We heard what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction. That's a little more recent, right before the Moab stuff kicked off. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. At this point, it seems that her focus is on fear of military action by the Israelite people. They have, they've crossed the Red Sea and the waters of the Red Sea were on their side and came crashing down upon the Egyptians. So we know the forces of nature in the hands of God are at work on their behalf and they have destroyed the Amorites. They're going to do the same to us, aren't they? The dawning realization that this is going to happen, that the 40 years has just been a a brief period in which they might be able to rest easy, they might be able to breathe, but the Hebrew slaves, after over 400 years in slavery in Egypt, they are on their way home to the land that God has promised them. They will take it, and it's not so much a matter of them taking it, but rather of God giving it and driving the inhabitants out of the land. And she knows this, and she believes this. I know that the Lord has given you the land. It's yours by right. Because God is in heaven, and this is his earth. And he... She doesn't necessarily go into all of the covenant promises, but there seems to be some knowledge by reputation that God had made a promise to His people and that He was a God who keeps His promises. All the hearts of the city are melting, hers as well. And she she says, um, 
a lot about the fear, a lot about the advance of the Israelites, but she concludes with a statement of who God is. For the Lord, your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. A problem arises when we regard those caught up in prostitution, however broadly or narrowly we define it, or anything similar as somehow beyond the reach of divine revelation. A a problem arises when we regard those who live dispositionally, vocationally, in overt depravity as somewhere beyond the extent of God's merciful, kind, and gracious redemption. Revelation, I know. Redemption, maybe that remains to be seen. But we see in the story as it's unfolding a trajectory away from the gods of the peoples, away from the idolatry of Jericho, away even from the immorality of Rahab and her life up to this point. I know that the Lord has given you the land. The Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And what she knew, what what Rahab knew, what she believed shaped her fears. But her fear, unlike the fear of those in Jericho around her, led her to faith. Not to resist, not to reject, not to rebel, not to seek against all odds and possibilities to thwart the sovereign plan and purpose of God, but rather faith that God is and that not only is He as one who exists, but He is faithful and He is just and He makes promises and He keeps them. The Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. The prostitute has met a powerful God. But there's more to the story. It continues with a promise. She asks the spies that she's hiding, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. The men said to her, Our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. This is remarkable. Is it the sort of thing that the spies will go back to Joshua and he will be upset? You shouldn't make that kind of deal. She she should perish with a lot of them. We would only assume so if we believe that the problem is that Rahab is a native of Jericho. 
and that that is the issue. And just by virtue of her ethnic identity or statehood or national status, she is somehow thereby destined for destruction. But that is not the case. The situation is such that whoever believes in God along the way, whoever trusts in Him, whatever their background, whatever their ethnic identity or national status, they can be brought into the family. They have been brought into the family. Already in the Exodus journey, there are multiple moments. In fact, do you know that judgment was brought upon Moses' own sister? Because she didn't like that he'd married an African woman, a Cushite. And there was prejudice in the camp based on that. And, and she died. Why? Because it, it wasn't about the ethnic identity or national status or whatever. It was about, are you in the family of God? And the family of God from Genesis 12 was always one with the nations in view. In you shall the nations be blessed. And it seems that Rahab is taking hold of that blessing. Will you save me? Will you spare me? I know this city is going to fall. I know we have great walls. I know we have an army. I know we have a king. I know we have But the city will fall. When it does, can you promise me that I'll be alive and my family with me. She even undertakes to intercede on behalf of people who aren't even involved in this transaction that they might be saved. And they say, sure, we can do that. Don't, don't tell anything about us, this exchange and what we've learned and what's happening. But... Um, when we come to Jericho, we will remember you. She lets them down a rope through the window. Notice this, her house was built into the city wall. She lived in the wall. It, it spells that out. It emphasizes it twice. And that's important for what happens later. She said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go on your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you've made us swear. Behold, when we come to this land, you shall tie this scarlet cord. They, they gave her a scarlet cord, it seems, as they were speaking with her. You'll tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house, your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household, into the house, bring them in. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. If you tell this business of ours, then we'll be guiltless with respect to your oath that you've made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. She sent them away. They departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. She went ahead and did it. No waiting. No, no messing about. In the moment, 
Off they go. I'm just going to go ahead and sort this out now. They departed. They went into the hills. They, they stay there for three days. They then go back into the camp. They, two spies, not twelve, going into the camp to one of the original two who said, the Lord has given us the land. And what do, what do they say to Joshua? Flashback to Joshua's past. Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also, and they quote Rahab, all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. But there was one who was not melting away. From God or from His people, rather, she was meeting God and His people. For in a window in the wall of Jericho, there was around the bars of the window, colored brightly, a scarlet cord. You, you, you remember the scarlet cord that we saw a few weeks ago? It, it was used to mark the birth of the firstborn of twins. Otherwise, it would be confusing as to who got the inheritance. We saw with the story of Perez and his brother Zerah that um, they got the order wrong. One, one's hand comes out and then the other is born and they had tied the scarlet cord around the wrong hand. The oldest, Perez, would be heir to the inheritance. Here, by tying a scarlet cord around the bars of her window, she is marked, Rahab is marked, as a fellow heir of the promise of God. When the angel of death visited the firstborn of Egypt, the doorposts were daubed with the scarlet blood of a lamb slain, and families were gathered into homes, and the blood marked the doorpost, and if one ventured out, they would be slain. But if they were in the house, they were safe. If they were inside behind the scarlet marked doors, they would live. And in the future, unknown to Rahab, unknown to Joshua, Jesus would take the cup of the Passover meal and inviting His followers to drink of it, He would say, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So that anyone who takes their place in the blood-marked house can know that they're safe. Anyone who has wrapping the Bars of the window of their heart, the scarlet cord of Jesus can know, I have an inheritance. I have a share in the kingdom of God. I'm safe. I will enter into the promise. Rahab's hope of survival tangibly laid in that scarlet cord. And she trusted that the spies would be faithful to their promise. We're told in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, 
By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. In James chapter 2, we are told in the same way was not also, after speaking of more respectable characters from history, um, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. I don't want you to misunderstand either of those verses and think that our salvation is by what we do or, or that Rahab's salvation was by what she did. That is not the point of either of those passages. We believe as we confess, you can look up for a deeper treatment of, of such things, the, um, the article in the, uh, the Second London Confession, that's a great place to start, that says we, we, we believe that justification is... Not by works. It is entirely the free gift of God's grace that gives us Christ's righteousness. We don't believe that righteousness is infused in us by any act or work, even of obedience, but rather simply as we empty-handed, passively believe in Jesus, we, we are justified by His grace. And yet... What James is speaking of when he says we are justified by works is different from what the justification Paul is talking about in which we are declared righteous. Rather, uh, uh, if Paul is talking about how God declares us righteous, James is talking about how we declare each other righteous, how, how, how the world declares us righteous. In other words, it is, it is not justification in, um, in, in God's eyes, in, in the sense of declared righteous divinely, but rather vindication in the eyes of a world that sometimes see people profess one thing and do another. Rahab believed God. And we can say, even as it was said of Abraham, Rahab believed God and it was counted to her as righteousness. Rahab believed God. She had faith. She believed that God is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So, she diligently sought Him. We, when we look back from this point on the previous elements of the story, we see that at every juncture, Rahab is demonstrating faith. She believes in the Lord. She trusts that He is indeed God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She believes that He has made a promise to His people that He will keep. None of this has anything to do with her. This is stuff that predates the spies coming to her home. She was ready and waiting. She believes that her life can be spared by a kind and faithful God working through His people, so she dares ask them. She believes that He can save. Her identity as a prostitute, think about this, it rendered her spiritually ungodly, personally immoral, and ceremonially unclean. And perhaps she would always be remembered as the prostitute. But she believed God. And she believed that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. So 
She sought him, proving the reality of her faith by righteous acts of faithfulness that disrupt the hitherto narrative of her life. She feared God in a way not that led to her rejecting or running from Him, but receiving Him. And that meant that she received His people. She hid the spies because they were representative of a higher king than that of Jericho. She did not owe anything to the king of Jericho. Not even it would seem the truth. She owed everything to the Lord God. She, she legally became something of a spy herself, an inside woman, a collaborator, by misleading the Jericho soldiers who had come to arrest the spies. And she did this because her fear of God was greater than her fear of man. You can't say this about everyone who, who says something uh, less than honest. But as various Christian ethicists, for example, uh, uh, characters like uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, uh, who was a collaborator against Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany, would, would as they examine such stories, they would say, it might have fallen short of the standard, don't tell lies. But at one level, it was the truest thing she could say and do. It was unto God, not unto men. Her deceit was not to destroy life, but it was to protect and preserve it, and that not even self-preservation, but preserving others who she didn't have to welcome in the first place. Her misdirection of Jericho's king was not about the obstruction of justice, but the promotion of it, grounded in faith that the Lord's was the side to be on. Joshua chapter 6. Verse 25. And all who fell that day, that's the wrong chapter, my apologies. Verse 25. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. Do you remember where she lived? In the wall. It says it a few times in one sentence, more or less. How did Jericho fall? Do you know the song? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Jericho, Jericho. I won't repeat Jericho up teen times. But Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. But there's a portion of the wall that didn't. There's a room in the wall that did not. It was marked by a scarlet cord. And all who were within it were saved. It says, whoever was writing Joshua reports... Not only were they saved alive, she has lived in Israel to this day. And the Hebrew has a deeper, slightly deeper sense that doesn't translate so well into English, but she has, 
lived in the midst of Israel to this day. So, she, so she's marginalized on the edges of Israelite society. It's not she's over there somewhere, the prostitute. The phrase used is the same phrase that's used of an unborn child in its mother's womb. Rahab has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. Within Israel, nurtured, cared for, strengthened, sustained, Within, within the womb of the nation, Rahab the prostitute. And within Rahab's womb. Well, there's some discrepancy. Some will say that Rahab is the mother of Boaz, the wonderful man we met this morning in Ruth chapter 2. Um, and that is based on the on-surface reading at the end of Ruth, where it says that Salmon fathered Boaz. And then we go into Matthew chapter 1, and we see that Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. The problem develops with chronologies and all of that, and the, uh, the, the Jewish approach to genealogies, uh, which excludes sometimes whole generations for various um, symbolic purposes that are somewhat lost on us culturally today. Why do you, you've missed, you've missed three or four generations here. Why do you do that? They have their reasons. In any case, we can say that in the womb of Rahab was either Boaz, the eventual husband of Ruth, or at least other ancestors that would lead to Boaz. Think about biology for a second. A woman has, from the moment she is born, within her ovaries, part of the DNA of each of her children. And it repeats. And it repeats. And it repeats. And whether it's immediate or through other generations that are past not recorded, we get to Boaz. And not to get ahead of ourselves, but you might could have seen the hints this morning. Boaz marries Ruth. And then we have repeats and repeats. King David. And then it repeats and repeats. Mary. And within her, Jesus the Christ. And you can trace it all the way back. The DNA, the genetics of our Lord and Savior, humanly speaking, to Rahab the prostitute, who hid with her family in the wall of the former brothel of Jericho, safe behind a scarlet cord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
we ask that we would not miss the importance of this story and its meaning, not least, to lead us to wonder, to praise, to worship. But if there are other lessons that we need to learn, may we learn that we must never limit your power or providence in such a way that a prostitute cannot be recipient of your revelation or indeed redemption. We ask, Lord God, that you in your mercy and grace would extend to all of us sinners apart from Jesus, far from you, dead in our trespasses and sins, the riches of grace that were extended and even more than were extended to Rahab, that we might, though once far, now be nurtured at, at the heart of the nation of, that is your people. That we would, and others besides, would be nurtured within the womb of your bride. Lord God, that we would take our refuge behind the scarlet cord of the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of the covenant, which was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And we pray that believing we would have life in the name of Christ and that having life in the name of Christ, we would live Christ-likely. In His name we ask. Amen.